Luke chapter 16. But three quarters of the way through the Bible is a book called Luke. It was written by a guy named Luke to one of his friends named Theophilus. In it, he chronicles the life and the teaching of Jesus, the Messiah. For several months now, we've been uh, walking through this rich, bountiful orchard together, taking fruit as we please off the trees, and we've reached chapter 16. Chapter 16 is kind of a difficult one to crack into because chapter 15 is so popular. Jesus just told a parable of the prodigal son. Such a famous parable casts quite a big shadow on the things around it. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is kind of a thing that happens commonly in the Bible. There's a verse or a chapter that's really important, and everyone knows it, and then it somehow overshadows what's immediately around it. Like if I was to tell you that there's actually a Bible verse where Jesus compares himself to a snake being lifted up on a pole, you'd be like, well, I don't know. I know that in the Bible, snakes are bad and Jesus is good, so I'm going to claim false. Actually, the verse right before John 3.16 is Jesus saying that he needs to become like the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up. We all know John 3.16, but not many of us know 14 and 15, right? In the same way, we have uh, the parable of parables, the parable of the prodigal son. And just after it is another parable that not many of us are familiar with. Luke 16, we have a parable called the parable of the shrewd manager. Maybe we're not that familiar with it because we're not that familiar with the word shrewd in general. If I was to come over to your house and you're like, hey guys, this is Dan Mike, my shrewdest friend of all, I don't know if I would be offended by that or if I would, I'd have to process that for a while. It may or may not be a celebrated word in our time, but it was in the time of Jesus. The Greek word behind uh, this English word shrewd is also translated in other places like wise. Remember uh, Matthew 7 when Jesus says, He who hears my words and puts it into practice is like a man who was wise. Same word as shrewd here. He was shrewd and built his house upon the rock. Uh, there's a famous phrase, uh, be, be as crafty as serpents and innocent as doves when Jesus sends out a 72, right? Be as shrewd. Or maybe you remember the parable in Luke that I shared on a few months ago about the servants who weren't ready when their master came back. They were the foolish servants. But the servants that were ready, Jesus said they were wise servants. They were shrewd. Shrewd can mean intelligent, prudent, Artistic, witty, wise, able to foresee and make decisions. This is what shrewd means. This is the, uh, the picture that Jesus gives of a, of a man that we should be like. Are you interested in what it says? Please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples, there was a really rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
So he called them in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So the manager called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He then asked the second one, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master, the rich master, commended the unjust manager because he had acted shrewdly. The people of this world are more shrewd, intelligent, witty, artistic, creative, crafty, wise in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, heard all this and sneered at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people highly value is detestable to God. These are the very words of God. I know what you're thinking. Oh, great. Dan Mike's going to talk about money. I just want to put you at ease. I'm not going to ask you for seed money. I'm not going to tell you that if you give money to me, that it will bless your life and, and guilt you into all kinds of these. Actually, the person in this parable gets fired. And so if, you know, if that's what you, sh- you should be thinking about, then that's fine. But not, uh, don't think I'm going to be manipulative today. I actually want to inspire you. I want to challenge you to really consider being shrewd. With your money. Why should we even talk about money? This room is so full of different income brackets, different amounts of debt, different amounts of things we have to pay for, different sizes of family. It's too complicated. Does money even have anything to do with our relationship with God? Can we in any way, when we spend our money, communicate to others who our God is? What our our value really is? I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of guy that reads a book or watches a movie, and um, there's just like one thing that just sticks with me and never leaves. You know, like, 
I'm sure that happens to some of you, right? Like you had me at hello or something like that. It's just something that just sort of always, you know, is carried in your heart sometimes. Um, has anybody ever seen the Alice in Wonderland sequel uh, by Tim Burton? <laughs> and it's a little gritty, okay? It's a darker one. It's fine, all right? But it was good. Um, there's a... There's a scene that just stuck with me in that, okay, there is one, at least one thing that stuck. There's a moment where the Mad Hatter is walking along with Alice in the woods, and he's trying to get her uh, amped up to go slay this, uh, this, this monster. She says, I'm not going to do that. He gets kind of perturbed at this, and he looks at her, and he says, you're different than you used to be. You used to be much, muchier. And he pokes her in the chest and says, you've lost your muchness. Sounds like an Alice in Wonderland line, doesn't it? That really stuck with me because muchness is actually a really great translation of a rare Hebrew phrase. You see, there's this phrase in Deuteronomy, this, uh, this passage in Deuteronomy that had become the anthem, prayer, and declaration of the children of Israel. Actually, it still is to the Jewish people a very, very important uh, passage. It's the one where Moses stands up in front of everybody and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. You probably know this, right? With all your, with all your, and with all your, now with all your heart and soul is a very common phrase as it would seem. It's like six or seven other times in Deuteronomy you see Moses saying, do it with all your heart, with all your soul. Love God with all your heart and soul. Work with all your heart and soul. But you never again see the phrase with all your might. Interesting. The Hebrew word there is meodeka. Why would Moses use this word only one time? Meod is a very common Hebrew word, which just is a proportion. It's, it's great. It's what we, we use when we say very or much. God uses it in the first chapter of the Bible. When he looks around, and he sees everything that he created and says, it is very good. Okay, meod. It's a common word. Why would Moses use the word meod? Why would he say, love God with your muchness? Your, your veriness. This isn't a new question. This question has been asked for years. I remember reading an article by Lois Verberg where she um, argues that this should be translated, love the Lord your God with all your very. And which means the thing that you're specifically designed to do, the thing that you've been gifted with, the, your contribution to this world, love God with all of that. Your very. Rabbinic sages of old used to comment on muchness, and they would say, this is the thing that you get paid to do, or even the payment itself for some, is your muchness. Love the Lord your God with your muchness. I think, I think that we need to talk about money. I think we need to talk about it more. If you've been reading along in Luke, you've found that in every single chapter, starting from chapter 3, every chapter that Jesus speaks in, there's a confrontation between him and someone to do with money. Something to do with money. For the last 10 chapters, 
10? Is that 13? 13 chapters. Let's do the math. We're chapter 16. (laughs) Is this important? Well, let me ask you this. Why did Jesus use such harsh language in this text that we just read? Why did he say, love money and and hate the other? If you love uh, God, you will hate money. Or you love money, you will hate God. This is a Hebraic way of thinking and talking. You may have noticed this in other places of the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean you're supposed to hate something. It's just the, the best word to use in contrast to how much you love something. It's doing justice to the amount of love that you have for something. It has to be a harsh word in comparison. Does that make sense? I mean, my friends do this to me when we go out to lunch. They'll say, Dan, Mike, why do you hate Mexican food? I don't hate Mexican food. I think it's great. I just love other foods so much that in comparison, it might seem as though I prefer this food in such a way that the only right word would be that I hate Mexican food. In my wedding, my wife gave me a ring. She said, with this ring I thee wed, and forsaking all others, I give myself to you. Now, does she really forsake everybody else? No. I mean, she loves her family. She'd do anything for her friends. Talking about forsaking. What it is, is it's just the best way of communicating how much she loves me. It's the best way in in comparison to the amount that she would prefer and to the amount that she is committed to loving me, it's just fitting that she would use the word. It might seem like everyone else in comparison is forsaken. Mine as well. This is how much I love. This is a way of talking that the Bible uses. Remember the verse. Jacob, I loved. I'm so committed and chosen and prefer. That it may seem like the best word in comparison is Esau, I hate it. Genesis 29, 31. Jacob loved Rachel. It literally says he hated Leah. He didn't hate Leah. He just worked for 14 years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. He was so committed to this woman by way of preference and commitment. It would seem as though the only word that would suffice to be said in contrast is hate. Jesus even uses this word two chapters ago in, in, um, in chapter 14. He says, if anybody is serious about coming after me, You must hate your family. Do you have to hate your family to be a Christian? You must love Jesus so much. You must be so passionate and committed to to loving him that the only word that could suffice comparing everyone else in your life, as far as priorities go, would be forsaken, would be hate. It's strong language, and it's used for a reason. Jesus says that there's a danger here. You can love money this much. You can love money so much that the sum total of your life, the preferences that you have displayed, can show that you actually hate God. That, you, that, that, that the best way of describing your relationship with God in the light of how much you love money could be 
words like hate, abandoned, or forsaken. Do you love God with your muchness? I know that there's a lot of things that we need to learn, but Christianity and following Jesus is much more than learning things. It's much more than just a belief. Now, Dan, Mike, don't tell me that this is going to cost me. It will cost you. It will cost you everything. I know that we're saved by grace. But I think what Jesus is asking here is, it's not am I justified by grace, but what am I justifying by grace? When he looks at the Pharisees and says, you've justified this. That's a question that we need to ask. What am I justifying by grace? Loving money? So Jesus tells this parable. I want to see what happens here. In verse 1 it says, he turned to his disciples. Why did he turn to his disciples? Why is that phrase in there? Jesus doesn't even finish the parable that he was just telling. You know, the prodigal son, right? He says one son comes home and there's a party. The other son's sitting outside on, you know, uh, some bench or something watching. And he's kind of mad about it. And the, 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 the father comes to him and says, come on, come into the party. And then it just sort of stops. We don't know if he came in or not. Because all of a sudden, Jesus just turns and says something to his disciples. What were they talking about? Do you ever wonder that? I, I think that sometimes when we look at parables, at least for me, I can't remember the first time that I heard some of these. And so we're at a disadvantage uh, emotionally at times because Jesus is trying to do something here, to string together a story that will take us places. And since we've seen them and heard them so many times, it's kind of easy to just forget about the actual process that people would have to, uh, to go through to sort of understand what's going on. What were the disciples saying? How are they processing this? Were the disciples even friends? I, sometimes I don't think so. I mean, every time I turn around, they're arguing. But if that's... Actually, take that back. My friends and I actually argue more than anything. So maybe they're best friends. <laughs> um, why are they... Uh, what are they thinking? You know, I mean, Jesus has kind of a diverse group that he's working with here, right? I mean, remember back in chapter 6 and 7 when uh, Luke tells us about these people that Jesus uh, collects as his disciples? One of them is called Simon the Zealot. Okay, he's a zealot. This is somebody who's passionate about getting the Roman occupation out of Israel so much like it's a disease that needs to immediately get removed. He's passionate, heart, soul, and might about the Roman occupation and, and, and uh, Israel becoming its own nation again. Right across the table, remember, is a guy named Matthew or Levi who actually made a lot of money on the Roman occupation as a tax collector. Imagine that these guys have to rub shoulders with each other. A little bit of a different opinion. A little bit of a different worldview. Can't imagine the banter that would go back and forth. You know, uh, Simon says, Jesus... 
You don't have to uh, t- tell that woman searching for her coins that I know where the 10th coin is. Just ask her if she had Matthew over to her house last night for dinner. <laughs> you know, Le- Levi says, hey, hey, uh, nice coat, Simon. Um, what is, did, you, did you spend all of your parents' uh, inheritance just yet? Or is there still some left over? You know, uh, what are these guys thinking? Peter... James and John sitting there with each other thinking, which son should we be? This has got to be a trick. The one son who did everything right is actually kind of um, unhappy in the end. And the one son that did everything wrong is actually celebrated in the end. Could Jesus really be telling us that we should just sort of spend our, our money and our values however we want to, and in the end that uh, the Father will somehow just uh, re- welcome us back if we're just a little repentant? Is that what Jesus is saying? And then imagine Jesus just stops him and says, actually, I got another one for you. There was a rich man. He was so rich. He had olive groves, olive tree groves all over the place. He had wheat fields for days. Workers are all over here. And he actually has a number, number two kind of employee. This is like Potiphar and Joseph here. He's got a Joseph. And this guy is uh, accused one day of being wasteful, like the prodigal. Spending his, spending his master's money however he wanted to. And then Peter pipes up and says, what? I know how this one ends, Jesus. Let me give this one a try. The master confronts him. He then says, I'm sorry, master. I'm not worthy to work for you anymore. Could you please forgive me any way possible and give me uh, some sort of job to do? And then the master says, oh, it's okay. Actually, I was just about to give you a promotion. Thank you for doing the right thing. And um, I will now treat you as a son. And Jesus is like, no. Actually, he gets fired on the spot. Well, that's not fair. How, uh, you didn't even say that he was actually guilty of doing anything wrong. He was just accused of doing something wrong. How, how could the prodigal get away with it and this guy get fired on the spot? How is that justice? Jesus says, nonetheless... The question is, what's he going to do next? Okay, well then Simon says that's easy. He could just work in the fields. He could just go out and work. He could do, I mean, yeah, Peter and James and John, and they'd say he could fish. He could do some fishing or some manual labor or something. And then Jesus goes, no, 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 he's too old. He's been working behind the desk um, for 14, 15 years. He's getting ready to retire. He, he, can't, he doesn't have what it takes in order to uh, do manual labor. Okay, what else? Judas pipes up and says, well, maybe he could become a beggar. I mean, we've got some very uh, generous people around and that would be willing to give him some money. And Jesus is like, no, he's too proud. He can't, he can't beg. He's been too rich for too long. It's ruined him. He's not, he's not humble enough to become a beggar and to live off that. Then he says, what do you think, Levi? And Levi's just sort of scratching his chin. He says there's one thing that he could do, but it's too risky. There's something that he could do, but it's... No, he's not going to do that. What is it? Well, he could try 
and summon in his uh, debtors and give them some sort of deal so that it's uh, his last move as a manager to get a good, uh, to, ma- to leave a good impression so that he's able to become friends with them and, and they're able to pat him on the back at the end of the day and say, hey, if there's anything you need, come find me. But it's too risky because we don't know what's the ma- what, the, what the rich man is going to do. Now, see, if the parable was just to end there, I think most of us would have no problem with it. We love stories like that, right? I mean, which one of you don't grin a little bit at the end of Ocean's Eleven when they're getting away with all this casino's money? I mean, which one of us, I mean, sure, we would say, that's wrong, you should steal, but we kind of have this soft spot for the underdog, especially when it's in comparison to somebody filthy rich, because a lot of us don't know what it's like to work with that kind of money anyway, so we vilify it. For it would be great to just say, uh, then Jesus ended this parable, and they were like, perfect, Robin Hood. But that's not what happens. Jesus throws in a twist. Verse 8. The rich man commended the unjust manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's kind of a weird ending to this story. I don't know if you know. This is like um, Sheriff of Nottingham watching Robin Hood run off into the woods and being like, nice. (laughs) That was actually... That was actually a good con. I can't believe I fell for that. (laughs) This isn't a... a, Sorry, Dave. This isn't a a common ending to the story. The the rich man gave the manager a high five because he had acted so shrewdly. Why? What if the purpose of this parable is to show... That this, that this action was so shrewd because it was a win for the manager. And it was a win for the debtors. But then it also was, in a way, a win for the rich man. At the end of the day, he's more concerned about being perceived as a generous person than being petty and just getting what was owed to him. If you would be fully just to just go to those people and say, actually, that guy was fired. You still owe me 900 gallons of olive oil. It would be perfectly fine going up to the person with wheat and saying, you actually owe me 1,000 bushels of wheat, not 800. That guy was fired. He was acting crazy. Just give me what is mine. But instead of doing that and risking being perceived as petty, he decides to just be perceived as the most generous person that ever lived. What if this is the purpose of this parable? Then that would create quite an interesting contrast to the other two characters that Jesus was just talking about. You see, the thread that's between these, these two parables, the prodigal son, the older brother, and the wise or the shrewd manager, is, is that each of them were given something that wasn't theirs, something valuable that wasn't theirs. And the action that they choose to is what defines them. The one who was given something, uh, uh, the younger brother, he chose to waste it on himself. And when the, waste, uh, the, when the wealth ended, he had nothing. The older brother 
was given everything that he could ever want. I mean, he had a relationship with the Father. He had all of the things that the Father was going to leave behind were his. Yet he wasted them, being self-righteous, becoming bitter and petty. And this person, in this parable, was using someone else's wealth to make other people's lives better in his moment of need. He used this wealth to display that the rich man who was behind him, so to speak, was actually a gracious and generous person. How many of us would think so craftily and so wisely in our moment of, uh, uh, of choice to not just preserve ourselves, but to make the quality of life better for everyone else? Jesus is using a rabbinic technique in these parables that's in Hebrew, it's called kal v'chomer. If you're taking notes, that's K-A-L, V apostrophe C-H-O-M-E-R. Okay, that's how I would spell it, all right? So just do your best. What it means in English is how much more so? He does this in um, explicit ways and he does this in, explicit is not the right word. Is it implicit and, anyways, he does this in obvious ways and he does this in subtle ways. There's, um, I'm thinking, there's times when he says, uh, how many of you, if your son asked you for an egg, would give him a stone? How much more so would your father in heaven give you what you need when you ask, right? He's doing that in these parables. A shepherd has 99 sheep, loses one, goes and finds it and celebrates How much more so would your father celebrate one sinner that was to come back? Same for the gal with the coins. And then he does it implicitly with the son, uh, with the two sons. How much more so if this father was unconditional and passionate about reconciling the relationship with his children? How much more so would your father in heaven be passionate about reconciling relationship with you if you would just turn? In this parable also. If this rich man is more concerned with being perceived as gracious and generous, how much more so would your father be concerned with that? How much more so should we make it our efforts to be as smart and witty as possible to to find ways to use our muchness and to use our money to make the true owner of it all look gracious? How much more so? We have an opportunity to be faithful with very little. We have an opportunity in small ways every day to make God look gracious. We could use the wealth and and the things that are given to us to make ourselves look uh, gracious or to, to build ourselves up and satisfy our desires. And I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to get super practical with this um, because I don't think there is a formula for it. I mean, what did the steward, he, you know, he cut one in half and he cut one in like 20% or something like that. Okay, it doesn't, it's not an exact science, but he was, he was thinking about it nonetheless. We all have different amounts of money, but 
we all have the opportunity each day to exchange values with, valuables with somebody. We all have the opportunity here in this country to somehow communicate value or not. And if you aren't faithful with the little opportunities that are put in front of us to do that, how can you be so arrogant to expect that God would entrust you with an opportunity to communicate something great? This is a great opportunity, but if you love money, you can't play. If you have a small opportunity to, to show a waitress or to show somebody that there's a gracious uh, God who owns all of our money, that there's somebody behind him that is forgiving of debts. If you can't do that, how will you expect to be faithful in a situation where you're able to show somebody else uh, that God would forgive them? Can you believe the opportunity that we have when we exchange money, that when we, when we forgive relationally? How can we expect to forgive, uh, to, to not forgive small things in relationship with each other? And then expect to communicate somehow to somebody near to us that God will forgive us of our greatest debts. It doesn't make sense. And maybe that's why people don't believe us. But imagine if you were to create, uh, to, to be crafty and to be wise, and to be shrewd with every opportunity that's in front of you? What if you were to be uh, considerate of the small things and the small opportunities in your life that you're able to forgive people, that you're able to show them uh, grace, and to cut debts in half? And then if it was actually to come to a point where you were able to say to them, the reason why I've been acting like this is because I believe that there's a master over us all, who, who can not only forgive our debts uh, half, but 100%, would be a lot more likely and believable. So consider your life. As a rule, do the decisions that you make with your muchness and your money, um, in the end, would they say that you love money and that you love uh, wealth so much that the only appropriate word for God and the things of God would be hate? That it's so obvious in the light of your decisions that you love wealth and you love yourself so much that the only word that can be used to describe the, the things of God or God himself is for forsaken. Or are you so passionate and ready to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your muchness, and you're so focused and prefer to display him in some way that the only word that's appropriate for uh, living for yourself or for living for, other, uh, for money or for wealth is hatred? That's something to think about. Hear this, crossroads. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone, not money. There's a reason why lovers of money hear this parable and get mad at Jesus. Let's find a way to love him with everything that we have. Everything that he's given us. 
Let's find a way to be shrewd and crafty in communicating that, that God sent his son to become poor so that he could come and reconcile us all to God. That Jesus would die for us and cancel, and cancel 100% of our debt. Let's pray and consider. If there are those of us in the room who have been the prodigal son and just feel like it was the right thing to do to just, you know, just to just spend money however we wanted to, whenever we wanted to on ourselves, um, repent of that. Got a great opportunity to be crafty and shrewd and cunning. God's more concerned about being perceived right as gracious and generous than he is about you being, having a perfectly balanced books. If there's any of us who are treating what has been given to us in a way that's causing us to sound uh, self-righteous and giving up the freeing relationship between our father, like the older brother, repent of that. Say that you've used doing what you have viewed as right as a way to justify yourself before God. Take some time and think about how to be wise and how to be shrewd and how to, how to use your money and situations to the advantage of the kingdom of God. Struck by this verse in Revelations, uh, chapter 4, where anytime the four living creatures would worship, the 24 elders would do the same thing. They would take this crown off of their head that they were given and they would put it before the throne. The direction that we're going as a community and as a family will eventually turn into that where we take shiny things, valuable things that, that, we, uh, that would attract attention to us and we put them far away from us and we use them as an object of, uh, to, to show God, to, to draw people's attention towards God. Any crowns that you have, lay them down before the Lord, not just as a self-righteous act, but as a cunning act to use uh, shiny things, glittering things, things that are beautiful and awesome to point towards the one who's on the throne. This is what Jesus would have his disciples do.